Let's jump into our message, week number six, and let me just warn you today, this is not going to be a pleasant message for modern Americans, because this, this message goes against our culture, it goes against, uh, the, 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 you know, we're all about independence and freedom, and it's just going to be a tough message to listen to uh, for people with a modern viewpoint, uh, especially for those of us who live in America today, it's just uh, not going to be the easiest, I just want to warn, forewarn you on that. Uh, in your notes, I could not fit all of the scriptures, so I tried to pick the best highlights of each passage, you can go home and read the rest of it on your own, or you can follow on the screens, or if you're following a new, new version, it'll be there. Uh, again, our theme text is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. That's such a great thought to think that we're in a race right now, that you're in a race. And I know it's easy to say, well, no, you're in the race, you're the pastor, no, you're in the race too. You're actually running on a track right now, and the race is called faith, and there's a crowd cheering for you that know you by name. Like, David knows you by name. Noah knows you by name. Rebecca knows you by name, and they're sitting in the stands cheering for you. And so the theme of the series is, what would it be like if these giants of the faith could come down on the track and run one lap with us? What would they share? What would they encourage you with to keep you running based on what they learn from their life and what they see from their perspective? And today... We're going to look at one of the most famous men in all of the Bible. It's a man that people well beyond Christianity know about. We've heard the story, David and Goliath, and we're going to look at King David. And let me just say, David is probably the most flawed man in the Bible. I mean, he had issues. He had serious, serious issues. He made serious mistakes in his life. He committed serious sin in his life. But through it all, God recognized him as a man after God's own heart. And I think through everything David went through, through all of his mistakes, all of his failure, he understood one great biblical truth. And I think he would share that truth with us tonight. And and here it is. If David was here, he would say, you are exalted by God as you humble yourself under God's authority. You are exalted as you humble yourself under God's authority. And this is a word that we don't like as Americans. We don't like authority. We don't want to submit to authority. We don't want to listen to authority. We want to be independent. We want to be our own person. We want to make the decisions. We know best how to run and manage our life. We don't want to listen to anybody else. But David would tell you with all of his mistakes and all of his flaws and all of his weaknesses and all of his problems, the reason he became who he became and the reason he was recognized as a man after God's own heart is because he understood authority. And so let me give you some history. The nation of Israel, uh, God rescued them out of Egypt, and God himself actually became the nation's king. And God was doing a pretty good job as their king, and then the nation of Israel decided that, you know what, uh, we want a king like every other nation. They had all these neighboring nations that had human kings, and Israel decided we want a human king like all of our neighboring nations. We don't want to be different. We want to be like everyone else, so give us a human king. And God didn't want to do this because God thought he was doing a pretty good job himself. But they kept pestering God. We want our own king. Give us a king. Give us a king. And so God finally said, fine, I'll give you a king, but I'm telling you, this king will break your heart. And the king was King Saul. And Saul started off well, but Saul ended up rebelling against God. God ended up rejecting Saul. And so Samuel, the prophet that anointed Saul, secretly and privately goes to Jesse's house in Bethlehem. And God tells him, you know, I've rejected Saul. He'll no longer be king. We need to choose a new king. And so go to Jesse's house in Bethlehem. And so he goes to Jesse. He said, bring in all your sons. One of them will be the future king of Israel. And so Jesse has eight sons, David being the youngest son of Jesse. Jesse calls in his seven oldest sons. And because surely it's not going to be David. He calls in the seven sons and Samuel looks at him 
and says, God hasn't chosen any one of these. Surely there's got to be another son. And Jesse says, yeah, but there's no way God's going to pick David. David's out taking care of sheep. He's the youngest. He's not the one that, you know, if God's going to pick a king, surely it'll be one of these seven, not David. So David had daddy issues. He had a dad that didn't really believe in him. Dad didn't even call him in and consider him a son when, when Samuel the prophet was there. They finally go get David. David comes in and God says, this is the one Samuel anoints him with oil. The oil to be king of Israel is flowing down his robe. And in the next verse, he has to go right back out and take care of sheep. And that's frustrating. To know that you got a call on your life, to know that you've been anointed to be king and there's greatness inside of you and yet you're out taking care of sheep and going right back to kind of your custodial duties that David had. So Saul was the appointed king and David was the anointed king in waiting and David had to learn how to deal with Saul's authority even though David knew he was going to be the future king and that God had rejected Saul. And David learned some incredible truths on submitting to authority. And let me just say, nobody is an exception to this truth. Nobody is an exception to this truth. Even Jesus had to learn how to submit to human authority. I mean, think about this. Jesus was 13 years old. They're in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. It's over. They're heading back to town. They get three days out of town. And his mom, Mary, freaks out and realizes, I've lost Jesus, not just any son. I've lost God. I mean, can you imagine what Mary felt? I mean, God gives you this one responsibility to take care of God, and you lose him. And so they go back to Jerusalem. They find Jesus in the temple. He's teaching. And Jesus says to his mom, Mom, what are you worried about? Don't you know it's time for me to start ministry? And it must be about my father's business. And, and Jesus thought at 13 years old, he was ready to go. I'm ready to start my ministry. I'm old enough. I'm mature enough. And his mom said, oh, no, you're not. You're coming home. And Jesus was innocent. He was without sin, but he was wrong in this situation. And he had to submit to his mom's authority, and he had to go home for another 17 years under his mom's house because Jesus was co-parented. Uh, he had God the Father as his heavenly father, and his mother was an earthly mother, Mary, and he was co-parented. Mary was responsible till he was 30, and then after 30, God kind of took over responsibility. And so 17 years, he's living at home. Now, uh, fast forward, they're at a wedding celebration. Jesus is 30 years old. They run out of wine. And... For some reason, Mary knows that her son Jesus can turn water into wine. I don't know how Mary knew. I imagine that Mary probably never had to go grocery shopping. Jesus would just wave his hand and the cupboards would be full. <laughs> but for whatever reason, she realized that, you know, Jesus knew how to turn water into wine. And so they're out of wine. And, and, and so she says, okay, you know, son, go, go, go take care of it. And Jesus uses a Hebrew idiom that basically says, uh, uh, you know, leave me alone, woman, which, which basically means, look, mom, it's Thursday. I don't do miracles on Thursday. It's not my time. I'm not ready. You know, and his mom says, yes, you are. So Jesus at 30 was not ready to begin his ministry. And his mom thought he was. And he obeyed his mom, began his ministry. And his public ministry began with that miracle. So nobody is an exception to this truth. We're all called to submit to human authority in our life. So let me give you four truths about authority to help you understand this. And then we're going to look at how David passed the authority test in his life and really use this key principle to become something great. Number one, God is the originator of authority and Satan is the originator of rebellion. God is the originator of authority. Satan is the originator of rebellion. Romans 13, beginning in verse one, everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. 
Would you like to live without fear of authorities? Do what's right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those, excuse me, who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes too. For these same reasons, for government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe. Then pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. All authority is from God, and God expects us to submit to a human authority. Now, I don't imagine that many of you have ever had the thought that the IRS is actually God's ministers, that they're actually serving God, that they're the authority God established. But according to Romans, they are. Uh, all authority, local law enforcement, local politicians, all authority is set by God. So let me give you a quick theology lesson. You and I can repent of sin. Like if we make a mistake, we can repent of sin, but the devil can't repent of what he's done. Uh, Satan cannot repent of the rebellion and the sin and the pride of what he's committed. And you can read the story of his fall in Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28. Satan was the most beautiful of all angels. His name was Lucifer. He was so beautiful. Uh, The Bible describes that he actually had musical instruments built into his body. He was the worship leader of heaven, the bright morning star, beautiful. Uh, And and I want you to think about this. Satan didn't have a bad father. Satan didn't live in poverty. He didn't have to go through hard times. There was no devil to tempt him. There wasn't a devil until he became the devil. And yet, in all of this beauty, with a perfect father, he had pride come into his heart, and he rebelled against God. And I don't know if you ever thought about this. He was so influential that he convinced a third of the angels in heaven. And we're talking in heaven, not on earth. Be one thing to influence people on earth, but he influences a third of the angels in heaven to fall away and follow him. Now, if you do your math, the good news is we still got him outnumbered two to one, to his two-thirds state, and so, so we're in a good situation. But Satan is the author of rebellion. He was, he was the very first person to ever rebel uh, through the sin of pride. He rebelled against God, fell from heaven. Now, we, we go into Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and it's talking about the Antichrist spirit in the world, the spirit of lawlessness or rebellion or, or kind of the Antichrist spirit of rebellion that, that's, that's going to be in the world at the end times. Verse 7. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. And so isn't it interesting that in an atmosphere of rebellion, see, God always works in an atmosphere of authority, but in an atmosphere of rebellion, Satan has the ability to do signs, wonders, and miracles. And in the end times, it says there'll be this lawlessness, this rebellious spirit in the world, this atmosphere of rebellion. And uh, I'm here to say that, that, that that's here. I mean, I don't think any, any time before in the history of the world that we have had this worldwide kind of a rebellious spirit in the world where we just want to rebel against authority. We don't want to obey. We don't want to listen. We pride ourselves in our rebellion. You look at many celebrities today and sports stars always being picked up by the police and just living these very rebellious lives. And these, these are the role models of our generation. And it's just very rebellious people. You, you even look at television and, and movies. Uh, one, of the, one, one of the popular shows for the last decade was a television show called 24 with a character named Jack Bauer. 
And Jack Bauer was one of the most rebellious figures on television. If the president told him, do not go through the red door, you better believe Jack Bauer is going through the red door because he's going to prove authority wrong. He's going to prove he's right. He's, he's going to rebel. He's going to do his own thing, and he's going to save the world because he knows better than anybody else. And we glorify these rebellious figures in the world. And so rebellion originates from Satan. Authority originates from God. And the only way to defeat a spirit of rebellion is with the spirit of authority. And that was the key to David's success in his life. Second thing I want to point out, rebellion against God's direct or delegated human authority is a serious sin with serious consequences. These these are not little things here. Rebellion against God's human authority is serious sin with serious consequences. Again, if we go back to Romans 13, 1 verse 2, everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God. And then at the end of verse 2, it says, so anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they will be punished. This is what happened to King Saul. God gave Saul a direct command, a direct order to go and wipe out uh, a a nation of people that was very ungodly, that was very sinful, that was committing all sorts of evil acts and things. And God says, I want you to wipe them all out. And Saul goes and he obeys partially. He decides that he knows better than God and and he has an idea. Well, I can wipe out uh, everybody, but the the good, you know, I I, I can take some of it and I can bring it back to God and offer it as an offering to God. And and I just, I kind of know better than God. I kind of do it my own way. And we see a lot of that in the world today. People say, well, I don't want to do it God's way. I want to do it my way. This is the way I think it needs to be done. And this is what happens in verse 22 of 1 Samuel 15. Samuel replies to Saul, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul admitted to Samuel, yes, I have sinned. I've disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command, for I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. But now please forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. And he wasn't sincere or genuine here. He was just trying to save face. And then verse 26, Samuel replies, I will not go back with you since you have rejected the Lord's command. He has rejected you as king over Israel. See, here's the truth. God wants your obedience, not your sacrifice. He wants you to obey. And it's clear. And so many times we'll take God's word and we'll say, well, this is, you know, this is the way I want to do it. As opposed to just obeying the command, obeying what he wants out of our life. And and so here's a big question for you today. Why in God's eyes, why does he call the sin of rebellion like the sin of witchcraft? That's a heavy statement. For God to say that rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. Now, let me explain it to you. Witchcraft is a religion where the witch is the deity. The witch becomes the deity. That's why, uh, you know, the witch will manipulate things and people to get what they want. We say lotions, motions, and potions. The witch becomes the deity. And so what rebellion is in God's eyes is when God sees us in rebellion, when God sees us rebelling against authority and just living rebellious lives, God says, I see somebody who is acting like their own deity. They're worshiping themselves. That is witchcraft. And then he goes on to deal with stubbornness. It says stubbornness. See, rebellion is I'm not going to do it. Stubbornness says I may do it, but you're going to have to convince me first. 
You're going to have to pull me dragging, creaking and screaming because I'm not going to, you know, you're going you're to have to make me do it. May, I may eventually do it, but it's not going to be easy to get me to do it. That's what stubbornness is. And let me say selective obedience is rebellion. Selective obedience is rebellion. And, and so, again, why would God say that stubbornness is like idolatry? Stubbornness is like idolatry. Stubbornness is the sin of worshiping idols. Here's the reason. A stubborn person is somebody who worships their own opinion. And see, we glorify this. I don't know how many people I hear say, well, I'm just hard-headed. And they almost say it like a badge of honor. And they have no idea that what they're saying is I'm idolatrous. I worship idols. I worship my own opinion. That's what a hard-headed, stubborn person does. And God is very clear about this. Rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is as idolatry. Uh, and, and let me just say, you don't need to submit to authority when you agree with authority, when you, when you agree with what authority is asking. It's only when you're in disagreement that you need to submit. See, if the IRS calls me and says, Aaron, we made a mistake, and we realized last year we withheld too much money, and we owe you $1,000, and so we're going to send you a refund check for $1,000. Well, I submit to authority. I've got no issue with that. I mean, that's easy for me to submit to the IRS in that situation. But what if they say something I don't want to hear? See, that's where submission comes in is not when you're in agreement, but when you're in disagreement. And and let me say, there is room in every situation for you to make a righteous appeal if you do it respectfully. But a righteous appeal is is such that if you don't listen and you don't uh, agree with my appeal, then I'm not going to wear you out. And you don't have to be a perfect authority figure for me to submit and obey. Uh, Because all... All authority is imperfect, except for God, All because it's human, and all humans are imperfect. So here's number three. Understanding and accepting the principle of submission to authority accelerates spiritual maturity. This will accelerate your spiritual growth. Why? This is why Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to pick up your cross, die daily, and follow me. That's what this means. To pick up your cross and follow him is dying daily. It's submitting to authority. It's submitting to God's authority. It's submitting to, to, to the leadership God has given you. That, that's what it is, submitting to your boss at work. That's what this is all about. Jesus runs across a guy who really got this well in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus returns to Capernaum, and a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the officer said, look, uh, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Excuse me, just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am a man under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go, and they go, and come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who are following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. See, Jesus runs into this Roman officer as a sick servant, and he says, please come and heal him. And he goes to heal him. And the Roman officer recognizes something about Jesus because he understands authority. And this is a non-Jew. This is a Roman officer, military officer. And the Roman basically says to Jesus, says, you know what? I've been watching you. And I've been observing you. And I'm starting to realize that I see what you're doing. You're doing exactly what I'm doing. You're operating in your kingdom the way I'm operating in my kingdom. You're a man under authority as I'm a man under authority, and you're a man with authority as I'm a man with authority. I say to my, my, my soldiers, go and they go, and come and they come. 
And what I'm recognizing is that you're also a man of authority just in a different kingdom. When you give a command, there are invisible spiritual beings that obey what you command. So you don't even need to come to my house. All you have to do is give the word and there are invisible beings that will obey your word and carry out your command and get the job done. And I'm recognizing that about you. And Jesus says, man, this guy gets it. He understands authority. And the Romans said, you're just doing in your kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, what I'm doing in my kingdom, a natural kingdom. So let me help you understand the difference between your body and your spirit. Your body matures automatically. Here's the truth of life. If you don't die, you're going to get old. And you can fight it as much as you want to fight it, but you're going to get old. I mean, your body is going to automatically mature. Your spirit, however, matures based on how quickly you're willing to die to yourself. How quickly you're willing to understand this truth of submission to authority and carrying your cross and dying to yourself, that's the basis of how quickly your spirit will mature. Now, let me give you two interpretive keys to unlock the Bible. If you're reading the Bible, there's two keys you got to have to unlock the Bible for this book to really make sense. The first one is love. If you don't understand that God is a loving, merciful, grace-filled God, if, if you don't get the fact that God is loving, this book becomes very, very dangerous, and we've seen that in the world. You've got to interpret the Bible through love. The second interpretive key of the Bible is authority. God operates through authority. Satan operates through rebellion. God operates through authority. And when you understand that concept, you begin to mature very rapidly. Jesus is surrounded by all these religious Jews who are extremely immature because they don't understand submission to authority. And this Roman, he says, this guy gets it. He understands it. Number four, submission to authority brings supernatural favor, blessing, and protection from God. Submission to authority brings supernatural favor, blessing, and protection from God. Now, let me say quickly, God always loves us. You cannot earn God's love. God's love is unconditional. God will always love you. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more or love you less. But God's blessing is conditional. God's love is unconditional. God's blessing is very conditional. God says, if you forgive, you'll be blessed. If you tithe, you'll be blessed. There's blessings all throughout Scripture on commands from God. God's blessing is very conditional. Why? Because as any good parent knows, he wants to reward a child's good behavior to reinforce that behavior because he knows that behavior will bring blessing into their life. Look at this. This is amazing. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents. Because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and your mother. Now look at this statement right here. This is the first commandment with a promise. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on earth. Isn't that what every parent wants for their child? Don't we just want things to go well for our children and them to have a long life on earth? Well, that promise comes through children learning to obey and honor their parents. We obey when we live at home. We honor when we move away from home. But isn't it amazing that God adds this profound promise in the Bible to this one command? That this is the first command with promise. Isn't it amazing? And here's the reason God does it. All authority stems from the home. All authority stems from them. If a child at home is taught to obey and honor their parents, 
that will translate to other authority outside of the home. And that will protect society and bring blessing onto society. But if a child at home is allowed to be rebellious in their home, then that rebellion will translate to other authority outside of home and you will decay society. You'll, you'll ruin society that way. And so parents, I, you know, I, I don't believe we should ever punish our children. I believe we discipline them and correct them and we do it relationally and with love. But if you allow a rebellious child to continue in their rebellion at home, you are cursing your children. You are bringing a curse upon that child. Because we are to teach our children how to obey and how to honor because authority stems from the home. And it's the first promise in the Bible, uh, or the first command in the Bible with promise. So let me show you quickly um, three tests that David had to pass, three authority tests that David had to pass understanding authority. The first test was the arrogance test. The arrogance test. I want you to remember, David was privately anointed to be king of Israel. David knew that God rejected Saul. David could have become very arrogant about this fact. David could have become very rebellious and had a lot of attitude with Saul. But I want you to look at the way David treats Saul in the situation of David and Goliath. Look at verse 32 of 1 Samuel 17. Forgive my voice. It's been a, you know, my wife has bronchitis and it's just been a rough week in the home. Uh, So if I lose my voice, I'll do my best to keep it up. 1 Samuel 17, verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant. Look at the way he addresses himself. He chooses a humble position before Saul. Even though he knows that he's better than Saul, he's more gifted than Saul, he could, he's going to be king one day. I mean, he could add the attitude, Saul, I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesse came by the house the other day, and, and you see the oil? Uh, all I'm saying is don't scratch the crown, Saul. I mean, make sure you, you, you keep it. You know, He could have had that attitude, but no, he takes a very humble approach with Saul. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out and fight this Philistine. Uh, you are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant, again, he's, he's continually taking this humble approach, has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, let me, let me show you what David's doing here. David is doing what I call a respectful, righteous appeal to his boss. See, you can, you can have a disrespectful appeal uh, to try to get what you want and try to bully them into doing what you want them to do. David is being very respectful about this. This is a righteous appeal, and, it, and it's a respectful, righteous appeal because David understands authority. David knows without Saul's blessing, if he tries to fight the giant, he's going to get killed. God will not go with David without Saul's blessing. Think about that. David would have been killed by Goliath if he would have tried to fight the giant without Saul's blessing. David understood authority. He understood submission to authority. And so let me say, if authority exists for no other reason, it exists to keep us humble. It exists because you're not going to have perfect authority. God's the only perfect authority out there. Uh, here's another good question, the abuse test. And this is a good question because, because what, what if authority is abusive? And this is a very honest, uh, healthy question. Well, let me, let me show you that. First Samuel 19, verse 9. But one day when Saul was sitting at home with spear in hand, the tormenting spirit from the Lord suddenly came upon him. As David played his harp, Saul hurled his spear at David. But David dodged out of the way, and leaving the spear stuck in the wall, he fled and escaped into the night. Then Saul sent troops to watch David's house. 
There they were told to kill David when he came out the next morning. So let me just say, until your boss tries to throw a spear at you, it's not that bad. It's just not that bad until he tries to pin you to the wall. But, but let, let me point out how David handles the situation. David has abuse of authority. David, one, he does not stay and enable it. I want you to notice that David doesn't stay and enable abuse of authority. But number two, David also doesn't retaliate. I don't know about you, but if somebody throws a spear at me, I'm going to want to throw it back. That's just who I am. David doesn't retaliate against the Lord's anointed, but he also does not stay and enable. So let me explain. There is a difference between suffering and abuse. We are all going to suffer under authority. All of us are going to suffer under authority. God expects you to suffer patiently under authority. But there is a line between suffering and abuse. See, abuse is damage. Suffering is just discomfort. We're all going to suffer. God expects us to suffer, but God does not expect us to tolerate abuse. Look at 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 13. For the Lord's sake, respect all human authority, whether the king as the head of the state or the officials he has appointed. Then down at the end, verse 18, you who are slaves must accept the authority of your masters with all respect. Now, slaves in this time period weren't slaves like in the 1800s in America. They didn't own you. They owned your work. So if you owed somebody money, you basically had to work for them until you paid it off doing whatever they told you to do. That's what slavery was. They didn't own you physically. They owned your work, your your energy. So he says, uh, do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased with you when you do what you know is right and patiently endure unfair treatment. God knows you're going to have a harsh boss. God knows that you're going to go through unfair treatment. And God wants you to submit to them as unto the Lord. But where God draws the line is with abuse. And so let me just deal with one area where people have have really perverted this doctrine. And they've made this sick doctrine. And it's it's in the area of spousal abuse. You know, people say, well, you just need to sit there because the Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands. You just need to sit there and take it. That is absolutely not true. God does not expect you to stay in an abusive situation if you are being hit. If you are even being threatened to be hit, you need to get out of there and not even put up with the threats. Not even put up with the threats. Because the first time you're a victim, but the second time you become a volunteer. And you just need to tell that person, listen, I love you and I'm committed to this marriage, but I will not stay here and, and take this abuse. I will not be in this situation. I'm gonna re- you're either going to leave or I'm going to leave, but I am not going to stay in this situation and enable you to continue this abusive lifestyle. And you're going to have to go and you're going to have to get real help and you're going to have to have accountability and there's got to be real change in your life and there's got to be a track record because I'm not going to stay here and give you the benefits of marriage and be in this relationship under this type of abuse. I am way too precious to God to be a whipping post to you. So there's a difference between suffering and abuse. See, in the world, we have marriage and divorce. In Christianity, we have marriage, constructive separation, and divorce. And constructive separation is when you go get real help. And we're going to separate, and we're not going to act like man and wife right now, but I'm committed to you, and I love you. And if you'll go get real help, and you'll show real change, and there'll be real accountability then there's a chance. But if not, God doesn't expect you to stay in that situation. And then lastly, the advantage test. The advantage test. What happens when you have an advantage over authority? What happens when you have an advantage over authority? Because it's going to happen. You're going to have an advantage over authority where you're going to be smarter, more talented. You're going to have a way to make them look bad or usurp them in some way. You're going to have an advantage at some point. What do you do? 
David had that. Saul's trying to kill David. There's 3,000 men, and they're hunting David. David's hiding in a cave. Saul goes into the cave, doesn't know David's there. He goes in to use the restroom to relieve himself. David sneaks up behind us, behind him with a dagger in hand. David could have taken his life. But instead, he cuts a piece of Saul's robe. When Saul leaves the cave, David, at a safe distance, stands up and says, Saul, look, everyone's telling you I'm trying to kill you. I'm not trying to kill you. I could have taken your life if I wanted to. Here's, here's your robe. And Saul looks down and sees his robe. And this is how Saul replies to him. 1 Samuel 24. When David had finished speaking, Saul called back, Is that really you, my son David? Then he began to cry. And he said to David, You are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today. For when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had, the, when, when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for the kindness you have shown me today. And now I realize that you are surely going to be king and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. David had another opportunity in 1 Samuel 26 and verse 7. So David and Abishai went right into Saul's camp and found Saul asleep with his spear stuck in the ground beside his head. Abner and all of Saul's soldiers were lying asleep around him. God has surely handed your enemy over to us this time, Abishai whispered to David. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't need to strike him twice. David said, no, don't kill him. For who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday or he will die of old age or in battle. The Lord forbid that I should kill the one he has anointed. But take his spear and that jug of water beside his head and let's get out of here. See, David is waiting to be the future king. And, and, and he continually has these advantages over Saul where David could have very easily taken matters into his own hand and he could have struck out against the Lord's anointed. He could have struck out against the king. He could have, he, he could have handled things on his own. You're always gonna have advantages over authority. There's gonna be opportunities where you're gonna be smarter, you're gonna be more gifted, you're gonna be more talented. Uh, you're gonna have a chance to make them look bad. You're gonna have a chance to usurp your boss's authority in some way. So here's the question. Why does God give you advantages over authority? Does God give you advantages to make authority look bad? Does God give you advantages to usurp authority? Or does God give you advantages to complement and support authority? See, God is a God of authority. And what would it be like in, in the world today if Christians understood this principle? If Christians would, would go into the workplace understanding this principle? How would our coworkers view God? How would our bosses view God? So here's David's final words of encouragement that I think he would say moving up to the stands. He would simply say, you don't serve based on how you're treated or how you feel. You serve because it's the position that God has put you in. Listen, you don't serve your boss because your boss has good days every day. You serve, you serve your boss even when he has bad days. You don't serve based on how you're treated. You don't serve based on how you feel. You don't serve man, you serve God. See, I don't need my boss to be nice to me for me to give 110%. I give 110% because of my character and my integrity and my relationship with God, not because of how I'm treated. And this was David's key to success. This is why David, with all the flaws and all the failures and all the shortcomings and all the sin of his life, he was a man after God's own heart because he understood authority. He understood respect. He understood honor. And what would it be like in the world today if people understood these principles? What would it be like if believers understood these principles? 
You know, because I've been in situations where I, where I was under leadership that didn't treat me fairly, that was flat wrong, wasn't immoral, wasn't illegal, just wrong. And I could have very easily struck back. Yet I served not based on how they treated me. I served ba- not based on how I felt that day. I served because it was the position God had given me. And so whatever job you hold, whatever position you hold, whatever authority you deal with in your life, whether it's bosses or managers or officers or, or you know, whatever authority you deal with in life, I want you to learn this principle. I know it's not pleasant for Americans today to, to hear stuff like this, but this is a very important biblical truth that we need to reinstate in our nation so that people can understand honor and respect again and authority again, and respecting authority again. Would you close your eyes with me? As we leave today, I want to ask if there's anybody here that really needs to take the first step of submission to authority, and that's submitting yourself to God. See, to to become a Christian, the Bible says you have to surrender your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord. The word Lord is just a fancy Bible word that means boss. It means authority. It means ruler. That's all it means. You cannot say yes to Jesus as your Savior. You can't do it. You say yes to Jesus as your Lord, and he becomes your Savior. See, we've made it too easy in America to, to you know, we, we've sold Christianity in a very cheap way. It says, oh, just accept Jesus as your Savior, as your rewarder. He'll be your Santa Claus. No, Jesus is your Lord. He wants control of your life. Now, it's all by grace. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to clean yourself up. You just have to surrender to him. And here's how you know, is he first in your life? Doesn't mean you're perfect, doesn't mean you don't make mistakes, but is he first? Do you, do you wake up daily saying, how do I just surrender my life to God today? How do I carry my cross and follow him? How do I lay down myself and really live for him? Because that's what Christianity is all about. It's not about works. It's all about his grace. But we do have to get to the point where we, we surrender to him and say, okay, you take control. I've tried, to, I've tried to run my life and I'm just not doing that great a job. I want, to, I want to give you control. I want you to be the Lord of my life. So if you're here today, I want to say a very simple prayer with you. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or come down to the front. But if you'd say, you know what? I need to submit my life to God today. I need to really, you know, accept Jesus Christ as my Lord to make him first in my life. You don't even have to pray this prayer out loud. But if that's you with every eye closed, I'm just going to ask you to pray a prayer in your heart. I just want to pray with you. Would you just slip up your hand and say, like, I'd like, I'd like to join you in that prayer today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. The prayer is simple. In your own words, in your heart, would you just say, God, I submit to you as my Lord. I want you to be first place in my life. Just say that to God this morning. The second part of the prayer is, God, will you forgive me? And the beautiful thing is he'll absolutely say yes. And we've all messed up and made mistakes. Just say, God, will you forgive me? And he will. And then the last part of the prayer is just say thank you. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for being the Lord of my life because you're going to do a much better job than I would do. You can look up here for a moment. If you prayed with us today, I want to encourage you to take one more step on your own. On your connection card, there's two boxes. One says I'm committing my life to Christ. One says I'm renewing my commitment to Christ. If you made either decision, I want to encourage you to check the box, drop it off one of the tithe and offering boxes as you leave. And just for the reason of we want to support you, we want to pray for you. There's also these books outside that say, now what? 
It's a great seven-day journey. If you made the decision, take the next seven days and read one chapter a day for seven days. Each chapter is about five minutes, and it'll walk you through the next steps. We have Bibles available outside if you don't have a hard copy of the Bible. And best of all, if uh, you made that decision today, be water baptized with us at 1230. Just come back at 1230. We'd love to baptize you. There's no better feeling than making that decision public and and expressing it through water baptism. How many of you would like to end today listening to our Coastline original that Tim wrote? Stand with me. And let's just just enjoy this together. This is an amazing song that our team wrote. It's, It's fun to watch them begin to write their own worship songs. time.